welcome to The Family Planning Files, a podcast from the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers funded through the Office of Population Affairs to provide programming to enhance the knowledge of family planning staff. I'm your host, Katherine Atchison. In response to the emergence of COVID-19, or novel coronavirus, the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is releasing a series of podcasts to help clinicians adapt their services to telehealth delivery and other care models, with today's podcast addressing intimate partner violence during lockdown. Our guest speaker today is Dr. Tina Bloom from the University of Missouri Sinclair School of Nursing. Dr. Bloom received her BSN from the University of Kansas and her MPH and PhD from Oregon Health and Sciences University. Her work centers around intimate partner violence and homicide, and in addition to research and publication, Dr. Bloom was part of a team to develop a smartphone app aimed at helping women in abusive relationships assess their safety and find needed resources. Welcome to the podcast today, Dr. Bloom. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you, Catherine. I'm really happy to be here. Well, thank you so much. Just to dive right in, I think a lot of people have preconceived notions of what intimate partner violence is and what it can look like. Can you give us an overview of what intimate partner violence can look like uh, in today's world, especially during lockdown? Sure, absolutely. You know, I think most people think about physical violence with intimate partner violence, and that certainly is a common form of abuse. But we also see sexual and psychological abuse and or stalking. These are behaviors that are enacted by a partner or a former partner. You know, some women won't experience physical abuse. It may be only sexual or sexual and psychological or only psychological or maybe all Three. So there's different patterns of it. I think one thing that's really important to know is that it is just so incredibly common. In the United States, we have about one in four women and one in 10 men who tell us that they experience physical, sexual violence and or stalking by a partner or an intimate partner at some point during their lifetime with significant impact on them. The other piece that I think is really important to understand about what intimate partner violence looks like is that control and isolation are really common strategies that we see with these partners. And so understanding that in the context of a lockdown situation, I think is particularly important. And to kind of piggyback off that, what about during just times of general stress or disasters or emergency situations? How can that contribute to intimate partner violence? That's a really great question. For our best understanding, stress, disaster, they don't cause intimate partner violence in the sense that there's not abuse in the relationship. It's a healthy relationship. And then suddenly there is abuse because of stress or a disaster situation. That said, couples certainly don't live their lives in a vacuum. And it's pretty likely that major stressors do increase the severity and the frequency of intimate partner violence. And that's consistent with most of the data that we see. So like when you think about things like major stressors, like not being able to pay your bills or, you know, not having stable housing, and imagine how much stress those things would add to any relationship, let alone a violent one, then think about what those stressors mean in terms of the resources that you have to be able to get yourself out of a situation and you start to get an understanding of the role that stress plays. 
In terms of a disaster situation, you know, you've got that severe stress. You've got typically increased socioeconomic stress. You've got people staying home to stay safe, but staying home isn't necessarily particularly safe when that means you're sheltering with an abuser. You've often got abusers that are unemployed, which is a risk factor for severe violence, both increase in stress and also they just have more time around to think about what their partner is doing and uh, be abusive. You've got more opportunities for control when people are stuck in a situation together. People are more isolated. Their social support networks are disrupted. Emergency services can be overwhelmed. Police response might be slower. I know in the kind of broader news out there, there have been a lot of reports of increased intimate partner violence just globally. Is that accurate for the U.S. right now? Yeah, absolutely. As far as we know, you know, we definitely have seen in the past that intimate partner violence increases after other kinds of disasters, like after the Loma Prieta earthquake, after Mount St. Helens erupted, after um, hurricanes Katrina, Andrew, Maria, you know, we saw upticks in reports of domestic violence, hotline calls, police calls. Initially, in this current pandemic situation, some of the hotlines were not getting lots of calls and think that that could be a reflection of people that are home with their abuser and they can't call. They can't find a a safe place to call or a safe time. could also be that they're just busy attending to other things and it's, you know, just one other thing on their list. But most of the information we're getting now suggests that a lot of hotlines are seeing increased calls. Some settings are seeing increased police calls. And there's a guy named Casey Gwynn who does a lot of work in this area. And one of the things that he had done recently, which I thought was really interesting, was looked for evidence of murder-suicides that were reported in the news. And probably 65% of the time when there's a murder-suicide, it's an intimate partner situation. What he found looking at the data for was March 28th through April 4th was that there were double the rate of murder suicides that we would normally see. And in 90% of those, there was evidence of an intimate partner situation. So the idea there, again, that there's already abuse, but it's just increasing in severity and frequency and potentially deadliness as well. And kind of going from just the background about intimate partner violence, many family planning clinicians do screen for intimate partner violence. It's one of the vital services offered, but now they are doing either entirely telehealth or partially telehealth for clinical services. And that can change things a little bit, the change of the dynamic between the patient and provider. What signs should the provider be alert to via telehealth and what questions should they ask during this time of lockdown and distanced clinical visits? That's a great question, too. You know, I think that in general, the same things that we think about in a face-to-face clinical encounter still apply. I think that we should generally be trying to ask most patients uh, most of the time about intimate partner violence. Uh, I think we should be trying to find ways to provide information about violence resources like hotlines in ways that don't require patients to disclose abuse, sort of the digital equivalent of a sign in the bathroom or safety cards in the bathroom. So, you know, maybe that's an email signature or some other way of, you know, just having that information on our communication platforms. 
And I think that we should be thinking about intimate partner violence, particularly when we see those patients that have unintended pregnancies, rapid repeat pregnancies, complicated pregnancies, injuries, STIs, depression, lots of stress, the helicopter partner that, you know, is kind of right there. So those are kind of the same things that we would think about in the clinic, just tweaked a little. And one of the big concerns, not just for family planning, but for all types of telehealth visit is patient safety, confidentiality, and privacy. What are some ways that clinicians can take care with their patients, potentially ones who are in an unsafe situation during telehealth visits? So I think that doing everything that we're doing by technology is definitely a new twist, right? We're all getting used to this new way of doing everything. I think it's probably helpful to remember that using technology to provide services to abuse survivors isn't actually a new thing. You know, it's been around since we had phone booths and rotary phones. Technological tools do have some risks when we're talking to abuse survivors, but armed with proper information, most abuse survivors can make good choices about how to navigate those things safely, and they can be really helpful. So, you know, there's there's some basic principles, right? Like we want to assume that everyone we talk to could be experiencing abuse. So kind of take universal precautions approach and design our uh, ways of interacting with them to maximize their safety. We want to be strategic in how we deploy our technology. And we want to give the patients the information that they need to use it safely and make the best decisions about it. And a lot of this, what I have borrowed from is the National Network to End Domestic Violence has what they call a safety net project. And that project is really focused on the intersection between technology and abuse. They have a tech safety and privacy toolkit on their website that I highly recommend. It's meant for domestic violence agencies and providers in those settings, but a lot of it is really applicable to clinicians as well and really provides what I think is some pragmatic ways of dealing with these challenges. So first, I think that clinicians want to keep in mind the risks of using technology, right? And different kinds of technologies, depending on how you're communicating with your patients remotely, are going to present different risks. But overall, the risks are interception, that what you're saying to her is being intercepted by the abusive partner, impersonation, where the abusive partner is posing as your patient to try to get information about them or information about what they've been telling you, confidentiality concerns, and And also, I think it's important to consider your own capacity for hearing difficult things and managing your well-being, because I think we're all struggling these times and hearing about abuse can be really triggering and difficult. So I'll talk a a little bit about some sort of general best practices, and then I'll talk about a few specific technologies and some more specific ways of navigating those safely with your patients. One of the many reasons I really love family planning providers is that they really tend to be about empowerment and informed decision-making. So I think bringing those principles to the use of technology with patients is exactly what we need to do. 
I think it's really important to have the same kind of prologue or little canned speech at the beginning of a clinical encounter, whether it's face-to-face, whether it's by technology, you know, something that is really talks about confidentiality and mandatory reporting and privacy and just short, meaningful, plain language kind of thing. Like that's really a best practice. And that helps particularly for abuse survivors to know what happens if I tell you something really, really scary. You know, are you going to call the hotline on me? What what happens next? Because a lot of that goes into their decision making. I think that making a plan with them for safety and privacy is another best practice that we really need to be aware of. And if the patient suspects that her communications are being monitored, you know, you offer other options for different ways of connecting and communicating. If the patient still wants to continue, even continue using the same mode that she thinks might be monitored, respect that. That's an informed decision and choice that they are making. It might make the hair on the back of our neck stand up a little bit, but but we do have to trust that survivors make the best decisions for themselves and they know their situations the best. But having other options available can be really helpful. Like maybe a phone call is safer for her than a video chat, you know, because she could go someplace else out of earshot and talk to you. Maybe she needs to use a different device. Maybe chat is safer for her because she can't be overheard. So just knowing what options you can offer her and presenting those out is another best practice. Thinking about telehealth and how we connect with patients remotely, I know for me, the first thing that I think about is video. Both a video and telephone conversation are generally more secure for an abuse survivor than other ways of interfacing with you technologically feels more personal, can be more accessible for some people with certain disabilities. For the provider, you can certainly pick up more cues, right? Like about their tone, their affect. And it's harder to impersonate a survivor with a video or phone call. A key risk, though, is that it can be overheard. Some ways of getting around that would be part of that safety planning, you know, just really talking about where are they connecting with you? Is it private? Can she be overheard? And, you know, and helping her kind of problem solve how to do that. And whether that means, you know, if she goes to another part of the house or, like I said, switches to a phone call. It's also really important for the clinician to think about their end of the conversation because everyone's working from home these days. So it's really important to negotiate with your family that this is where I'm working on this and not to interrupt. You can have like a fan or a sound machine outside the door. Don't put the patient on speaker. These things really help also to reassure her that it is truly private, that you know she's not going to be busted in on by the family or, or what have you. Chat or text are also useful in a lot of contexts, and they have the benefit over connecting with our patients by video or audio that they are silent, and so they can't be overheard, can be really accessible, and also can facilitate conversations that are hard to have in a more personal kind of setting. You know, what we see with, say, hotlines typically is that if an abuse survivor calls a hotline and talks to the advocate on the phone versus if they're chatting with them online. When they're chatting, tend to get more numerous and graphic disclosures of violence. It's just a little bit more comfortable to do it that way for a lot of people. 
people. And it gives them sometimes the benefit of written information that they can refer back to. Obviously, the challenge here is that these things are more easily intercepted and they are more easy to impersonate, you know, a survivor. So just because you started a conversation with her over text and chat doesn't mean you have a guarantee that as the conversation continues that you're still talking to her. Some options for dealing with these kinds of things, a chat platform, if whatever you're using for telehealth or, you know, gives you that option where you have sort of a a discrete platform within what you're using, that could be more secure than, say, text messaging on a phone. You can establish a code word or a sort of security question at the beginning of the conversation. You know, the security question being something that only she would know the answer to. So if you're interrupted, if the conversation resumes, or if something feels off, you could always use that question to make sure that you're still talking to her. It's a little easier to misunderstand you know, because we don't have all of those cues with text or chat. And so can be helpful to clarify and check in when things feel off and try to avoid slang or acronyms that she's not going to understand. Really important to remind her that she can delete those messages and that she may want to look at where they're stored on the cloud, particularly if these are, you know, text messages on her own phone. Sometimes there's a backup. Um, so like on iCloud or Google, might uh, want to check that and delete that and just to remind her of that. And from the clinician's point of view, what happens often with a chat or text conversation is it's stop and start. So there may be very long pauses where she's not responding and she may just stop communicating altogether. And those kinds of things tend to freak us out, especially, you know, when we know that we're talking to someone in an abuse situation. So I think it's helpful to know that that's typical. If it's a chat session, you can plan to close the chat after a certain period of time, you know, if you don't get a response and and let her know that. And it is okay, too, to take a pause as a provider, to step away, to process, to call a hotline yourself and get some advice, that kind of thing. So that is okay. The last one I'll talk about is email. It's got a lot of the same sort of issues and limitations and perhaps benefits of chat or text. It's probably the most easily intercepted form of digital communication, and it's hard to protect it, and it tends to be stored multiple places. So what I would advise clinicians to do is to use it sparingly with consent and to do safety planning around you know, making sure that it's a safe device that she's using, that she's using a strong password and you know, changes her passwords often if she needs to. That's a lot of really great information. And moving from that, imagine you're a clinician, you have a patient who's just made a disclosure to you. Unfortunately, we are dealing with a pandemic with communicable diseases. How can this clinician help their patient make a safety plan or an escape plan and balance the need for social distancing versus needing to find safety or shelter? What are ways clinicians can balance all these competing safety needs and get their uh, patient the services she needs right now? One thing that I can say beyond the shadow of a doubt is that domestic violence service providers, advocates who work in agencies or on hotlines, they are the most adaptable and creative problem solvers that I personally have ever encountered As clinicians, we often get caught up in the idea of helping the patient to leave. And that's really what we would like to see. My gosh, get them out of this horrifying situation and to a safer place. But I don't think that that's actually the right outcome that we should be looking for because that's a very individual decision. And maybe it's not the right choice for her or maybe it's not the right choice for her right now. 
And we sort of set ourselves up for a lot of distress, if that's the answer that we're looking for. But anything that we can do in terms of helping her to know about domestic violence service providers and how to connect to them is just so incredibly helpful. Shelter is a challenge during the pandemic and with the need for social distancing, but service providers have been incredibly creative and they'll often do things about, you know, helping her to problem solve who is in her network, where could she go, how could they help her get there, you know, what can resources can they provide to facilitate Some agencies are using, you know, we got a lot of empty hotel rooms these days uh, because people aren't traveling. So some are putting up survivors in hotel rooms. So in general, in my experience, if a survivor connects with domestic violence service agencies for help, they're going to get quite a lot of it. And you mentioned a safety plan, and I'm so glad that you did, because that is also, I think, the ideal outcome for a violent survivor. And there's no better way for her to get that than connecting with a domestic violence service agency. Could you clarify what a safety plan might look like for our clinicians? Absolutely. You know, a safety plan is accomplished through a dialogue with the abuse survivor. And it's really individualized and it's based on what does that survivor want? You know, what are their priorities? What are their plans? Do they want to stay? Do they want to leave? How dangerous their situation is? What resources they have? So it's a it's a dialogic process to identify what is going to be part of each survivor's safety plan. And the whole point is to keep her and her children, if she has them, more safe and to shield them from the effects of violence. Abuse survivors don't control what the abuser does, but there's often things that they can do, even if they remain in the abuse situation, to help protect themselves. Like, for example, if she has children, you know, sometimes children will insert themselves in fights. They're trying to protect their mother. They're they're trying to, in some way, stop the violence. And kids can get hurt. So making a plan with her about how she's going to talk to her kids, what she's going to have her kids do when a fight begins. You know, are they going to you know, go in their room and shut the door and, and, and lock it? Or are they going to run across the street to a neighbor's? And so, you know, a safety plan will have strategies there for how she's going to take care of herself and her family. And then if she's planning to leave, then the safety plan looks really different uh, because that is uh, elevated time for risk. But again, something that is really one of the most effective tools that we have for reducing exposure to violence. The challenge that we have with safety planning is that most survivors don't ever access domestic violence resources. So We know about hotlines, we know about shelters, we know they're in our community, but a surprising number of people in the community don't really know about those services or they don't know what they provide. You know, they might think, well, if I'm not going to go into a women's shelter, then there's nothing they can do for me. And so we know that somewhere between two and 10% of survivors access those resources. So just educating them about them is hugely beneficial. Well, our time is almost up today, but before we go, Do you have any final takeaways for our clinicians to think about? I want to make sure that clinicians themselves know how to connect with those services. So, you know, knowing the National Domestic Violence Hotline, contact information, how to connect people with that. I would add my colleagues and I have developed an app uh, that is free for survivors. It's a safety planning app at myplanapp.org. Anyone can use it. And that clinicians should know that they can also use those services to help kind of problem solve what they tell patients or how they work with a specific patient. 
I do want to add that the other piece that clinicians can do that no one else can do for an abuse survivor is to help her with her medical needs, help her connect to the care that she needs for physical and mental consequences of violence and help her with family planning. We know that one in four abusers controls their partner's reproductive choices and or, you know, is actively trying to get them pregnant when they don't want to be. It's a really common control strategy. And so helping her to identify ways to maintain control of her own reproduction, you know, long acting reversible contraception and emergency contraception and knowing how to conceal those from a partner. That is a huge thing that can really change her life for the better and is something that only clinicians can do. So in terms of the top three takeaways, what I would say is it's really important to remember no abuse survivor expects us to save them or rescue them. And that sometimes what we're doing is planting seeds that can take a while to grow, but that is hugely valuable. And when people know their options and resources and can make a safety plan, that is an incredibly positive outcome and can even be life-saving. The second point is that if there is one thing that abuse survivors have told me again and again about healthcare providers that helped them, it's that those providers were empathetic. And that I think it's so important to remember that when we're talking to someone who is so vulnerable and alone, and we help them to feel heard and believed and validated, that is also an incredibly positive outcome that also plants seeds that helps people sometimes years down the road. And then the third and final point that I would make is that I think the clinicians have to take care of themselves during these difficult times, and especially when you're hearing intense things from your patients. So being able to set some boundaries between home and work and close that office door, if you've got one, you know, shut the laptop, put it away, turn off the phone, and take that downtime is really important. And to debrief with people that are safe, you know, advocates, supervisors, that kind of thing, because this is hard work, but it is just incredibly important. It is. And thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Bloom, and sharing your time and experience with us. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. For more content, search for the Family Planning Files or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, is available at our website, www.ctcfp.org. This podcast is supported by award number 5FPTPA00602902002 from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, OASH, Office of Population Affairs, OPA. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the presenters and do not necessarily represent the official views of HHS, OASH, or OPA. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of the Family Planning Files.